Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to read along with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Romans 15, 1 through 13. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Father God, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would teach and instruct us, meet with us, and grow us, and help us in all things to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Be with all of us sinners as we seek to know and follow your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So think for a minute about the dreams that you have for your life, right? If someone asked you that question, what kinds of things would you tell them about? One of the things I notice when we answer that question, like if somebody asked me that, is that we tend to give these very external answers. It's about stuff or places or things out there in the world, right? You think about, like, if you watch advertising, it's advertising the dream vacation or the dream house. Um, even something like a relationship, the dream marriage, is often more um, in our minds about kind of this external thing than it is. Um, it's, it's talking about this ide ideal person, not the person that we're actually like dating if, when people talk about that. And that's striking to me because when you think about it, those are not the dreams that I think we really at root have, right? The deepest dreams for all of us on some level are internal dreams, dreams about um, our, our hearts, right, that we would see growth and change in ourselves, dreams about our relationships, that they would find healing and growth, dreams about, like, children, but not just that they, like, go find careers, but that they become people of character, that we have good and deep relationships with. I think those are the deepest dreams that we often have, but we almost never say them when people 
people ask. And the reason for that, I think, is because those dreams feel hard for us to name because they're so big. I mean, it's in a weird way seems more plausible to me that I would win the lottery than that certain relationships in my life might actually be healed or brought back to fruitfulness um, or that some persistent struggle would be overcome. I think often the dreams that we let ourselves have are too small um, because we're not willing to admit or talk about those big dreams. And here's why I was thinking about that this morning, is because in this passage of Romans, Paul is really summing up this theme that he's really been talking about for the last like couple of chapters, but that I've avoided using the, the, this word for, which is this theme of unity in and the reason that I have avoided using that word is because I think that our dream of what unity is often looks like that first sort of dream, which is that it's something external and pretty shallow. When we think about the church being united, we just mean that like people aren't fighting with each other or splitting from each other in some institutional sense. But when Paul speaks about us being united as the church in love, what he pictures is something more like that internal deeper dream, but we need to like see and grasp that before we even appreciate what that unity that he's talking about is. So what I want us to do this morning is just walk through this text where Paul finishes up a set of calls to us to be united, but be mindful of the fact that when he uses that language and calls the church to that calling, he's talking about something much deeper than we often discuss. The first thing we see about the unity that Paul calls us to is that it is a unity that dies to self. A unity that is about dying to self. If you remember two weeks ago, and we're here, we preached on Romans 14. And in that whole chapter, he discusses these disputable matters that were dividing the church in Rome. Um, and he talks about how there's these different people with these different convictions on those matters. And he calls those people the stronger and the weaker, brothers and sisters, but what his, his point is, is that even though, in a sense, the stronger brothers and sisters might be right, they need to live in a way that gives up their rights and respects the needs of the people alongside them. And he picks that idea up in this passage. In many ways, he's kind of like transitioning from that discussion in verse 1, where he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please our remember from last week, one of the things we talked about, or two weeks ago, sorry, was that there's this difference between um, the rights that we have and what love calls us to do. That we're not supposed to simply approach the world in terms of our rights and these things that we're allowed to do even, but rather approach the world in terms of what is loving, even though that often means giving up our rights. And so Paul picks up that idea, says we should bear with each other's failings rather than seeking to please ourselves. And then he expands that into this general calling in verse 2. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Our goal in life, he's saying, is not to pursue what is good for us, but to pursue what is good for others. Our goal is not to be strong ourselves so much as it is to build up the strength of people around us. Which is actually a really striking <laughs> statement. 
I think that we wonder um, if there are any caveats, any ways that, you know, we can get out from under that. And the answer is there are some clarifications, and we'll get there in a minute. But it is important for us to recognize just how crucial in Scripture this general idea is. That success in my life is not measured by how well I do, but by how well I help others to grow and do in the world. Um, I know um, lots of us have worked outside the home in different settings, and I often think about that in terms of, like, a bad boss and a good boss. I don't know if you've ever been able to compare bosses, but, I mean, a bad boss is bad, right, because they're clearly about themselves, yes, and their career, and so they're taking credit for the things that other people do, and they're, you know, they're passing the blame off to the people that, you know, that when they make mistakes, and they're all about themselves and their success, but it, an excellent boss, right? I don't know if you've ever, I've worked for maybe like one in my life, but is a truly beautiful thing because they're instead about the people that work under them, right? They give away credit to the people that work under them, and they're laboring to help those people develop their abilities and to serve in the ways that they can best serve and to grow as people, and that's, that's just this powerful thing to see at work, and Paul is saying that we should view our role in the world as that kind of good boss in relation to the people in our lives and our neighbors around us. That the way we're called to measure our success is to say, are they being built up? Are they being grown? And to see our success realized in them rather than in ourselves. And he says we're to do that because the example that we have is Jesus in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you fallen on me. See, I say that, seeking the success of others, self-dying love, and I think one of the things that happens in our hearts is that we immediately start resisting that, and the reason that we give is, is justice, right? It's that that's unfair. Um, it's, it isn't right that others would succeed instead of me succeeding. Now, like we said, that's the wrong definition of success, but more than that, what Paul is reminding us is that it is a good thing that love is not grounded on justice, because otherwise we would all be doomed. So he quotes Psalm 69, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, and he applies it to the sufferings of Jesus. This is the idea that in our sin, we insult God and reject him and rebel against him, and that should result in our rejection and our destruction. But instead, what God does is pour out the consequences of that insult on Jesus, on himself. At the cross, Jesus Christ suffers the consequences for that sin, experiences God's wrath at the evil that we commit. Which means that God's love is fundamentally founded on a giving up of the rights of justice. And thank God for it. If Jesus adopted that position, right, that I'm going to do what's fair and I'm going to do what's just, we would all, in a real sense, be destroyed. We would never be saved. So Paul says, look at Jesus, who gave himself up to suffer for our sins, and then make that your example as you seek to love one another. He spells it out in verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. And again in verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you 
in order to bring praise to God. That the model we have of Jesus, who gives up of himself, who ultimately dies to himself in order to save us and lift us up, that is the model we are to have when we think about unity together, about what it looks like to love one another. Let me just give a few practical examples of what I think that looks like in practice in the church. First of all, it means that the kind of love that we're called to have for each other always involves dying to ourselves. And that isn't pleasant. Dying to what we like and to what we prefer and to what makes us comfortable. It's true of simple things. Um, I mean, it's awkward, for example, just to, just to introduce yourself to somebody new on Sunday morning, right? Um, at church or in your neighborhood or whatever. It's awkward and it's easier to just talk to the same people and do the same things. But the awkwardness doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, right? If what we're called to is self-dying love. In fact, I think oftentimes the things that we look at and say, that feels hard, that should, instead of turning us off from them, be a good indicator that we should consider trying to live into them, right? That that's often a sign that that's the sort of love that we're called to have. Dying to ourselves also means that we need to be honest about just how much our comfort and our preferences play a role things that divide us. There are, um, for example, churches that have been split right down the middle over the style of music that we play, right? Not this one, thankfully, but I have been at such churches in my younger years. And what strikes me, both sides of that argument always dress up their reasoning in a really pious-sounding ways, right? So one side says that we need contemporary music to be relatable to the younger generation and reach out and the other side says we need traditional music because these texts of these old hymns are rich and deep and we, you know, we don't want to lose them. And both of those statements actually have some truth in them, right? When you frame it that way, you're like, yeah, I see like, the validity in both of those things. But what strikes me, um, for years I used to lead worship in churches, and one of the things we would often do, recognizing the kind of truth in both of those statements, is to... Um, to take old hymn texts and do them with contemporary melodies and instrumentation. And um, when we would do that, some people would really appreciate that from both of those camps, right? And, you, and I, I always felt like, okay, like, I really buy that you meant that. But other people really still didn't like it. And what became apparent as I visited with them over the years was that, like, the things that they said weren't what was going on. What was going on for both sides was just a desire for comfort. One side felt most comfortable singing the songs from the radio. The other side felt the most comfortable singing the songs they sang in their youth. And, um, and those are not spiritual or theological convictions. Those are preferences. And those for both sides are the sorts of preferences that we're called to die to. And I am not bringing that up because I want us to suddenly have that debate about music here in our church. Um, and I'm deeply appreciative of both sides in that debate. Like, you know, like we said, but I point that out because those sorts of preferences creep up all the time in ways that often separate Christians from each other. I mean, never mind music, which at least has some good arguments, right? I, I watched people leave a church years ago over a change in the color of carpeting, right? I have um, seen um, division and strife that happens when a pastor changes his wardrobe a little bit, or you buy a new sign, things like that. And the problem with all of those things is that those are only preferences. 
that is not about Jesus Christ or his gospel. And Paul's calling is that whatever our preferences are, we need to seek to be dying to them. And then one last application of that call to die to ourselves. Dying to ourselves includes situations where we are in the right and the other person is in the wrong. We mentioned this already, but when you think about the love that Jesus shows, um, he doesn't save us because we deserve it, right? We deserve condemnation. He doesn't save us because we earn it. We have earned only his rejection. He doesn't save us because we have a lot to offer and are really great people. God doesn't need us, and as the Apostle Paul reminds us, he is not served by human hands, nor does he need anything. God saves us simply because we need salvation. He saves us simply because we need salvation from Scripture. And if that is true, that has to radically change how we think about other people. We are not called to love other people because they deserve it. That is so often our temptation to try to get out of it, to say, this person doesn't deserve it. Look at, you know, look at the poor choices they're making. Look at the way that their life is. We're not called to love people because they've earned it, because they've really tried and made an effort to clean themselves up. We're not called to love people because they haven't done anything wrong. We are called to love people simply because they need love. We're called to love people simply because God has called us to love them. And that is hard because that strips away many of our excuses. Loving the undeserving and the selfish and the needy, right? Which is really what that's saying, right? We're to love those sorts of people. That is going to involve dying to ourselves. But like we said, that's because that's what Jesus has done for us. So that's the first part of that big picture of unity. And if you feel the weight of it a little bit, I would invite you to sit in that weight because by the third point, we want to speak to it. That's a lot bigger than just sort of getting along. It's dying to ourselves. Paul adds to that idea that we are also called to have a unity that crosses barriers. That's the second thing we see, a unity that crosses barriers. If you've been with us as we've been preaching through Romans, you know that something Paul has repeatedly addressed is this deep divide in the early church between Jews and Gentiles, these two kind of groups. Um, in Rome, at the church there, there are both groups. It seems like the Gentiles are slightly larger, but there's a significant group of Jewish Christians as well. And, um, and if you haven't been with us, those, that division runs deep. That is a racial division um, that, on the one hand, Jewish people saw themselves as this particular chosen kind of group of people, and that made the Gentiles feel excluded. And at the same time, the Gentiles saw Jewish believers as, as strange because they were part of this minority culture and as outsiders. And it was a cultural division that touched on the foods that they ate and the clothes that they wore and where you went and what you did. And it was, in a real sense, even a religious division. Both of these groups are Christians, right? But the ways that they think Christianity is supposed to look and function are really different. One side has all these rituals and history that they want to incorporate. The other side has no use for that and feels like that's exclusionary. So there's this division in the church in Rome. And Paul, in verse 6, starts speaking to it um, by saying that, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That language of one mind and one voice is calling to unity, right? And starting to speak to the dividedness of the Roman church. 
And then in verse 7 again, um, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so if we're to have one mind and one voice, that means we have to accept one another. And in case his readers are still missing that he's speaking to this division that exists in their midst in verses 8 and 9, he then names it directly, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Paul says that Jesus came on the one hand to Israel to fulfill these promises to Israel, and he came at the same time to gather in the Gentiles. And then in the verses that follow, he quotes four different parts of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy and the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah, which pretty much covers the whole kind of breadth of the Old Testament. And in every case, he's making the point that God has always been about saving and gathering in the Gentiles as part of his plan of salvation. There's both the theological and the practical point that I think Paul is making in those verses about that Jewish and Gentile division in the church. First, the theological one. Um, I think that it's worth just recognizing that by those quotations and what he's arguing, he's saying something about how the story of the Old Testament works that I think we can miss. Uh, we often read the Old Testament, I think, as if God's plan was just to save this one ethnic group, and that's the story of the Old Testament. And then at some point, um, you know, at the end, around the end of that, he figures out that actually, no, that's not a good plan, so he decides on this other plan to send Jesus to save, um, to save everybody. And that misunderstands the Old Testament. The, the idea of the Old Testament was that God was calling Israel not just to like be saved and go do their thing, but rather to be this sort of witness to all of the nations of God's goodness and love and glory. Um, that was always the plan, and that's what Paul is saying here by quoting all the way through the course of the Old Testament. It was always about gathering in all of the nations. The Old Testament is about God's plan of salvation through Israel, and it's about their struggle to fulfill that calling, um, and often their failure, and ultimately that does lead God to fulfill that calling himself through them in Jesus Christ. Um, and that's important to recognize theologically, because if you try to read the Old Testament and you don't understand that that's what's going on, I don't think that it always makes sense. But that, always leads, that also leads us to a practical point about how we think Here's the question. Who are we? Which side are we in that story that I just told? On the one hand, there is a sense in which the church is a continuation of Israel. If you remember in Romans 9 through 11, Paul talks about how we, um, you know, Gentiles are being grafted in to this people of God. Um, and so God's promises to Abraham and Moses are still, in a real sense, promises to us. But we can also get the wrong idea when we hear that. Because when we hear that, we start to think of ourselves as Israel in the sense of, like, we're the extra special people that God has chosen. We think that we're better than others. And that is where we need to stress that we are also, in a real way, these far-off Gentiles who God saved, even though it was not expected. That's true historically. Um, I mean, I, it is important to just recognize, you know, the New Testament and the first Christians are a bunch of you know, I mean, Jewish people and Arabs and Turkish people and North Africans, right? And, um, and we, in many ways, for many of us, were the far off in Paul's world. But it's also true personally. 
Without God's grace, none of us would be the insiders. Each one of us is born in sin. And it is only God working through Scripture and the Holy Spirit and our families and friends and the church and Jesus ultimately that we are saved. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, even if you never remember a time that you didn't trust in Jesus, we're still not native children of God's kingdom. We have been saved by his grace alone and brought in. We are all outsiders left to ourselves. And so our purpose then in recognizing that is to be called into Israel's mission, to be witnesses to the nations of God's goodness and glory. That's where we're ultimately meant to go, but not to go to that as sort of special privileged people, but to go to that as people who have experienced that ingathering, who have been drawn in, even though it makes no sense that people like us should be here. Um, and then to recognize that that means that we are to go out and to call and draw people as diverse and strange as us to be a part of the body. Ultimately, that's the vision we're given in Revelation 5, which we talked about on Easter, if you were here, um, where um, John sees these saints singing to the Lamb, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is still what this story is about, is about the gospel going and calling different sorts of people, people who by nature should have these barriers and divisions between them, calling them together into the people of God. We should desire that kind of diversity in the church. Diversity of every sort, right? Yes, people of different races and ethnicities, which is where our minds go first. People from different cultural backgrounds. People who talk and think differently than we do. People with different interests and gifts and ways of doing things. And not just that we should put up with whatever diversity we're stuck with, rather that we should desire that and long to see that kind of thing realized in our midst. And I think we all hear that and agree in theory, right? I, I, I hope. I hope nobody's like, no, I don't want anybody that's not like me in the church. It's easy in some ways to say that. But in practice, I think we often slip in the other direction. Not because we're trying to be evil, just because we're doing what is easy. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it is hard to be in relationship with people have you ever noticed that you're just, you know, I mean, you just sit down to have a conversation and you, you're suddenly like, what do we talk about, right? Like, you, you know, we, you, you don't, you're not going to talk about the same things as me. How do, how do I talk to you? How, what do I do when the fact that we don't like, like the food, you know, that the other person likes or that like the, the really emotional political opinions we have are not the same and we shouldn't just, you know, just shoot them off. It is hard to figure out how to live in relationship with people that are different. That's what we're called to do in the church. And I think when we hear that point, and I think as a preacher, when I make that point, um, in our world today, our tendency then is to immediately focus on the big picture parts of that calling, right? To say, well, what we need to do is solve um, racial diversity in the church, which, which we do, and, and political diversity and stuff like that. And that is important, but I think that in the midst of that, we can lose just that simple personal call that I really think is the starting point which is to say that each of us is called to be seeking to love across those worldly barriers in our own lives. So if I was going to give you an application and a calling, and if I feel one for myself when I think about it, it's not to try to solve the big structural problems 
although I wish that I, I could tell you how to do that, but it's to, to say, like, who is somebody in my life that is different from me, that is hard for me, right? A different age, different ethnic or cultural background, different, different class, right? Different education level, different whatever. You know, a neighbor, a coworker, this person that is just different from me, um, whoever that person is, how can I move towards them in love? How can I try to befriend them and get to know them? Not to just change them and make me like me, right? But to appreciate them and to understand them and their stories. How can I take those steps in my own life to cross those barriers, even though it's hard, to get to know somebody like them? I think there is a real power in us trying in our own lives to be mindful of that. That when you look when, when you look around the room and you say, who am I going to talk to? Who am I going to try to get to know, right? Rather than just say, well, this is the most comfortable person, to say, this is somebody that is different from me, but who is equally a part of Jesus' people. So that's two pieces of the picture of unity. Self-dying love and crossing the world's barriers. That leaves me with a question then, which is, how do we do first place, like I've said, I've seen churches split over the color of the carpet. Um, we are divided in our world in so many ways, too, by class and age and education and politics and preferences. And when I think about all of that, how hard it is to cross those barriers and how hard it is to die to myself, I think that it's easy for me to say, these are the things that we're supposed to do to find unity. But it's much harder for me to put it into practice in my life. So how do we do that in life? hard enough as it is. The good news is that the Bible doesn't just tell us that this is what unity should look like. It also says, here is how to pursue that goal. Scripture never just says, go do this. It always says, do this, and here is how, and here is why. Which is actually maybe just worth reflecting on for a minute before we apply that reality to this. I've tried to point this out before, but I think it's so important for us to recognize that how and why is important to how we pursue these sorts of callings. I often hear people talk about good Christian morals, right? Good biblical morals. And um, I appreciate what they are trying to say in that phrase, but you will never hear me use that phrase in a positive way. And here's why. Because by good biblical morals, what they almost always mean is the list of things that you're supposed to do, Right? Here's my question for you. If you read the Bible, um, what group of people were the best people at, at keeping good biblical morals, right? Who was the most scrupulous, careful group of people in the Bible to have those good Christian values? I guess in their case, good Jewish values, right? It's the Pharisees, right? You know, I mean, they, they're doing the things you're supposed to do. They're doing it scrupulously. But the problem is that they've missed the how and the why, Right? Having those morals out of a sort of rigidness or legalism or self-righteousness, that is not actual Christian obedience. And so we as Christians always need to be thinking about the method and the motivation with which we follow God's calling, as well as the goals that we're called to pursue. And so when Paul calls us to this kind of unity, he doesn't just tell us to do it, but he tells us that we need a unity that is worked by God. back at the text, but with that in your head now. Start in verse 4. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Paul just quoted from Psalm 69 and applied it to Jesus. So he says, first, we're empowered to do this by understanding the scripture. But be careful, again, that doesn't mean like you read the Bible and you get some good morals from the stories and that inspires you to keep them, right? What he's saying um, is that we somehow find hope in this encouragement that scripture provides and in this endurance that it teaches us. And, 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 and so then we say, well, what is that endurance and what is that encouragement, right? It's not just grit and determination, but verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that endurance and encouragement aren't just things we work up in ourselves, but those are things that God gives us, and he gives them to us somehow in Jesus Christ. In seeing the attitude of mind that he had, but even more than that in verse 13, which is really the summary, like this is the final blessing and go forth of this whole section of Romans. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So just walk through that. It's the God of hope. God is the source of hope and our confidence rests in him. By looking at him for our hope, then we start to experience joy and peace in ourselves, Paul says. And then we overflow with that hope. Um, We show forth that love. And in this passage, we seek that unity and live out our hope in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is what that's saying. We're called to a sort of love that seems unsafe and impossible when we view it only in terms of this world die to ourselves and our rights, that sounds scary. To embrace people that are different from us and cross barriers, that seems impossible. So where do we find the hope and the strength to let us do that and show that kind of love? Well, sometimes I think our world tries to solve it by telling us to look at the other person, right? Which is not what scripture says, but sometimes that's the answer. Look how wonderful they are. Look how good it is to love them. And that is true in part, but there are two problems with us doing that. The first is that even as much as there is good and beauty in other people, there is also sin. And as we try to move towards them in love, we're going to feel some of that sin, and that's going to wound us. And there is sin in ourselves that often blinds us to the goodness and beauty they have, so that we won't be able to see it. So it's not enough to just say, well, look at the person, right? Neither is it enough to motivate that call towards love by saying, well, look how good love is. I feel like it's like pop song solution, right? Love is, you know, so beautiful and it's the answer and just love because it's lovely. Um, And again, like love is a good and beautiful thing, but um, we, when we're hurt or wounded or betrayed, don't feel it is very beautiful anymore. Maybe it is, but it's also hard and costly. Love is worth everything, but it will cost you everything. And so what scripture says is that we are instead to be motivated by love through focusing on God as its source. By putting our hope not in the people we're supposed to love, nor in the goodness of love itself, but by putting our hope in God, and then somehow having the character and quality of the love we're called to show be The best way I know to to illustrate that, to give you a picture of that, is to just say this. This is a reality I've realized about marriage. 
church. Um, If I love my wife because she is so great, that is actually a problem. Not because she's not great, which she is. I am a huge fan of my wife. But, um, But in the first place, there are moments when she's not perfect, right? And when looking at her, I could easily find excuses not to love her. And there are moments when I am selfish, and, um, and even though she's wonderful, she is not so wonderful that it has the power to overcome the selfishness in my heart and draw me into love. What I am called to do is to love my wife because I have hope in God. He has shown great love to me, and he has shown great love to her. He has offered himself up for both of us, died for us, and rose again, and is at work in us even now, and he will ultimately bring joy and peace And that hope is the thing that calls me to love my wife. And here's the thing. I say that, and you might think, well, that just, you know, what what difference does that make? It makes all the difference. It looks the same from the outside. But here's the thing. If I'm loving my wife because of her, that puts an unbearable weight on her shoulders. Because she suddenly has to deserve and be worthy of that love and live up to that love. Um, And uh, and it, it seeks a source of motivation and fuel that isn't sufficient because my heart is crooked and selfish. But if I love her simply because God loves us and has called me to, then that actually sets her free. She doesn't have to do a set of things or live up to a set of demands. I am obligated to love her simply because God created her and calls me to love her. And that means that whether she's having a good day or a bad day, she deserves my love. And that means that that calling um, is meant to drive me regardless of what's going on. In marriage, one of the most freeing things that we both found is the ability to look at each other and say, it is okay, I don't love you because of you, I love you because of Jesus. And that is the experience of God's love that in so many ways is meant to motivate all of our relationships of love and hope. To set people free from having to be a certain thing or trying to motivate ourselves simply from them, but simply to recognize and experience the love that God has shown us, and then have that motivate and drive us to love people, regardless of who they are, regardless of how hard it is, regardless of how different they are from us. As we close, then, I want to take that idea and turn it back to our initial question, which is, what is your image of the unity that we're called to have with God's people? Remember, that's Paul's theme in these chapters. Our unity, we said, involves dying to ourselves and crossing barriers. Looking back over the last few chapters, it also involves giving up our rights for weaker brothers and sisters. It involves loving our enemies and repaying good for evil. It involves using our gifts to serve the body. Those were all themes, if you've been with us in this series, that we've also trust on. All of that together is that God-sized picture of what we mean by unity. Not just like not you know, not attacking each other, but living into that calling. How do we get that? The answer is that our unity in the church is not meant only to be God-sized, but to be God-shaped. Not meaning shaped to look like God, but shaped by God. We are called to love each other, to love the church, not just in some institutional sense, but in the sense of all y'all, all of us together, called to love it in scripture, but crucially, not because of how lovable it is. We're called to love the 
church, not because of how lovable it is, but because it is loved by God. And there are plenty of blessings in that calling to love, right? There's plenty of good and beautiful things in the people around us. But there is also sin and brokenness that eventually we're going to bump up against. And those people are not so wonderful that they can overcome the sin in our hearts. If our hope is in the church, in each other, as the object of our love, um, then our hope won't survive the sin and brokenness that is a part of this world. It will turn into resentment and bitterness. But ultimately, our call to unity is rested on this fact, that our hope is in God. And no matter how much we struggle and how imperfect we are here together, God does not change. He provides us joy and the peace that we need to live together. We can look around at each other and at the sin and failure and say, it's okay. It hurts, but it's okay. I don't love you because of you. I love you because of Jesus. That is the God-shaped motivation for love that Paul ultimately calls us to and that empowers us as we seek to give ourselves up for each other. Would you pray with me? Father, see in it.